to 100 Centuries, episode 10. Da-da-da-da! Da-da-da! Um, I'm Connie B. Dowell. And I'm Stephen B. Dowell. And today... We're going to be talking about Planet X. Yay! It's episode 10, and it's Planet X. Although, that has yeah. nothing to actually do with the number 10. It has more to do with X being a placeholder for the unknown. Um, really what we're going to be talking about today, though, is the planet Pluto. Um, for those of you who do not know or don't keep up on this sort of thing, um, NASA's first mission to Pluto, um, the New Horizons mission, is set to make its flyby, its closest approach, on July 14th of this year, um, 2015 being this year, uh, basically completing, you know, sort of the, the ex- well, not completing, but basically, um, catching all of the, the places that were classically defined to be a planet. Um, now, there is obviously large controversy over the term planet these days. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but for, for intensive purposes, for, the, for this podcast, we'll, we'll, humor, we'll humor it, we'll call Pluto a planet some of the time. Um, and it's a little planet. <laughs> talk, yeah, we'll talk about why it's no longer called a planet, necessarily. Uh, but basically, this all goes into the history of the, the Pluto itself, and what we're actually going to be talking about today is the discovery of Pluto and sort of the, the quest to find, find this planet X, um, and then the actual finding of it, and then its fall from grace when it stopped being, when, when people realized that it wasn't necessarily um, what they were actually after. Our quest for Pluto actually starts at about 1847, and French astronomer Urban Lavier, uh, Lavier, probably not pronouncing that right. I'm not very good with French. Is the one who really did the uh, the uh, the work on this. Um, Lavier was a mathematician, and what he did was use uh, his specialty was actually orbital mechanics. That is predicting the location of celestial bodies based off of known observations of their orbit. And if you know your physics, and you know your math, and you know Newton's laws you can predict pretty much exactly where something should be in the heavens um, based off of observations made. And he was working with the orbit of Uranus, actually, okay, um, the seventh planet, and discovered a big problem. Uranus's orbit wasn't behaving as it should be. And so his conclusion was, after doing all the calculations, was that there had to be a planet beyond Uranus, an eighth planet. And so, crunching all the numbers, he predicted in 1847 that this eighth planet should exist, and he even was able to figure out where it was in the sky. Um, he then sent his, his uh, I guess, findings to a friend, uh, basically to his, who his friends, who, um, you know, pointed their telescopes to the location and found, um, found Neptune, essentially. And so, Neptune was discovered mathematically before it was actually seen in the sky. And then later on, whenever they find an object like this, they often go back through old observations and, and old photos and things to see if there was pre-discovered, is what they call it. And indeed, Neptune had been seen before. In fact, it was actually even seen by Galileo Galilei as early as the 1600s, but no one had recognized it before it was until Lever came around. The problem was, okay, after they've discovered Neptune and, you know, looked looked through, you know, all the observations they had of Neptune uh, and crunched the numbers on Neptune's orbit, they quickly discovered that there was a problem. 
there was still this discrepancy in both the orbits of Uranus and Neptune that basically suggested there had to be yet another planet. And so in the late 19th century, this big push to find this planet X began. There had to have been this unknown body out there. And astronomers at the time were really into it. And this brings us to uh, the next player in this whole history, a wealthy Bostontonian named Percival Lowell. Lowell was... Uh, stop me, by the way, if you have any questions yeah. or anything. Okay. Uh, Lowell was a very interesting character in his own right, and we could probably do a whole podcast just based on him. Um, but for, um, uh, to give you an idea, Lowell was one of the first proponents of the idea that Mars, the planet Mars, was inhabited by a race of people who were trying to siphon off water from the polar caps to save their dying civilization. Um, okay. because of the canalies. Yes. Uh, um, can you remind me which... What time period we're talking about? We're talking about um, 1894 to 1910s, really. Okay. Um, it's, I, I'm curious because I'm reminded of an episode of a different podcast, ah. um, Stuff You Missed in History Class, which did this whole episode about the, the this like hoax of, you know, things that people had seen on Mars. They were like fat people. It, it's pretty strange. So the 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 yeah. Mars bat people was it Mars or was it the Moon? I don't recall, but they, I feel like there's a connection here. Yeah. Probably both. In fact, Probably for a long, both. long time, and even um, to today, people still claim and still look for life on these planets. Even even the Moon will occasionally yeah. have. Um, um, so I'm sorry, I can't I can't completely recall what this is, but there is a tangential. Yeah. Related, um, seeing weird stuff on another you know, celestial body yeah. in space we'll, episode. We'll, we'll post it we in will, the... Uh, we'll figure out what it is show and post notes. it. Yeah. Anyway, um, it was and, very strange with yeah. bat people and... Bat people and things like that. Well, the whole uh, Mars thing here, or Percival Lowell's claim with Mars, basically in the 1890s, or actually the 1880s, um, wrong, wrong thing, uh, an Italian astronomer, Giovanni Scipolari basically saw what he called channels, that would be the proper translation of the word into English, mm -hmm. on Mars. And he just, he didn't think anything of it. He thought these were just surface features on Mars, just like you could look at the moon and see craters and things like that. Um, basically, he was seeing the, the rift valleys and the, and the dead river valleys yeah. that Mar you know, on Mars that you could see today uh, with powerful enough telescopes or just looking at the photos NASA has. Well, Lowell had read this article in Italian and mistranslated the word used, which was canali, okay, as canals in English, and yeah. figure and thought, oh, they must be man-made. So he himself started looking for them. And he himself, uh, he actually built a whole observatory to privately, to you know, his own private observatory in Flagstaff, Arizona, in a place called Mars Hill. It's the, the Lowell Observatory today. And initially he was, he was doing this, you know, Mars research out there and his theories, even at the time, were a little out there, and people were kind of like, oh, it's Lowell's, you know, it's crazy man Lowell doing his own thing. Um, but eventually, he, he shifted gears. And in 1906, I guess either getting tired of Mars or figuring, you know, you know, just, just whatever, he switched from, from looking at doing observations of Mars to this search of the missing planet, this planet that should be beyond Neptune that people were saying 
you know, had to be there. And um, he started looking for it um, using this observatory. And he searched and he searched and he searched, basically fruitlessly until about 1916, where he literally killed over from exhaustion. Um, he had a stroke in 1916 and died later that year, basically from this thing. And this kind of put a whole wrench into the, 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 the Lowell Observatory at the time, because Percival Lowell had, had basically endowed the observatory in his will with a million-dollar endowment to keep it running after his death as his legacy. Well, his widow, Constance Lowell, basically was like, no, that should be my money, <laughs> and tried to wrest it, that steal it away from the observatory. And so a 10-year legal battle ensued that basically shut down um, Lowell Observatory while this was all sorted out. Um, and finally, 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 um, after 10 years, so we're talking about uh, 1926, the observatory comes up running again and um, starts to uh, starts to do research. By this time, Lowell Observatory is now being run by you know actual astronomers, and so they were actually doing real... Well, not, I shouldn't say real research. Lowell was doing real research, but he had no formal training in astronomy. Mm -hmm. Now it was run by actual astronomers and was a somewhat respectable observatory doing uh, astronomical work. Um, and one of the things they, they decided to continue doing was search for Planet X. However, the uh, director of the observatory, uh, Vesto Melvin Slifer, didn't really consider this to be a very high priority. And so he essentially delegated it to really an intern, if you will. And it was a new hire, this untrained Kansas farm boy of uh, who was 23 years old at the time, named Clyde Tombaugh. Mm -hmm. okay? um, Tombaugh was an amateur astronomer and he a builder of his own telescopes. And, and he had gotten this job because um, he had read an ad in a science journal for basically an internship at, at Lowell Observatory. He had done his own research into this. Um, and he had these nice astronomical drawings of Jupiter and other celestial bodies, which he sent, and that impressed Slifer enough for Slifer to offer him the job. To give you an idea, this was not a very glamorous job. Mm. Tom Bow's job was essentially to stay up really late at night, get his tele get time on the telescope after the other astronomers were done for the evening. It was to stay up, take lots of photos of the sky. Okay, then during the day he had to develop those photos, and then. Uh, basically compare, take photos taken on different nights of the same area of the sky, and compare them with something called a, uh, a blink compara a comparator, okay? Which is basically this thing, and essentially, think of like a, a, like a magic eye thing you stick in mm -hmm. your, your eyes on, and instead of showing multiple images, whenever you click the thing, it just flips back and forth between two yeah, images. it's like the viewfinders. yeah. Okay. You find it. I, th I yeah. call it what? Magic Eye? Yeah. That, no, those are the books that you hold up and push Okay, gotcha. <laughs> uh, yeah, the few hundred mm -hmm. things. Anyway. <laughs> so, and he basically would spend basically days, you know, hours on hours, days upon days just doing this. Um, flipping back and forth. And the thing was, this was before computers or anything like that. He had to basically look to see if anything in the photos moved. Um, so flip back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Um, and he did this for about a year before finally he saw, when looking at some photos on the February 18th of 1930, okay, using this blink comparator, 
he saw in photos taken on January 23rd, 29th, an object move in the background. Uh-huh. Very tiny, very small dot was moving. And, you know, at the time, they had enough uh, knowledge at the time to be able to tell what things were. So, um, this wasn't a comet. This wasn't an asteroid. This was not something they had already discovered. Um, this was something new. And it just was moving through the background of the sky and about the location that Pluto was predicted to have been in. And so he basically told his superiors, and they made him do observation after observation after observation to see if the thing was actually there. And lo and behold, it was. And so finally the observatory, on March 13th of that year, announced they had found it. They had found this missing planet X and um, kind of released it to the public, okay, to much fanfare. Now... Whenever you find a new planet, or whenever you find something in the solar system, you generally get, you know, naming rights. This is a controversy in amongst itself. Um, you know, you, you get to pick a name, but the name you also pick has to be something that is acceptable to kind of the world at large. Yeah. Um, this had happened with the discovery of, of uh, Uranus and Neptune, for example. When Uranus was discovered by William Herschel, um, he had wanted to call it... Uh, the Georgian star after his benefactor, King George of England. I think it was George III, actually. Um, and obviously people were not very... <laughs> outside yeah. of the United Kingdom, people didn't want to have anything to do with it. A lot of people actually outside of the United Kingdom wanted to call it Herschel after the man who found it. And finally, it was people in France who said, well, we're naming everything else up there is named after Roman gods. Why don't we just call it Uranus? That'd be the next one after Saturn. Uh, if you know your mythology, Jupiter, his father was Saturn, his father was Uranus. Uh, when Neptune was, was sighted, very, very quickly the name Neptune was, was picked. And um, Lavere, who was, again, people tried to name after him, he actually jumped on the board with the whole Neptune name fairly quickly, saying, hey, this is the perfect name for it. So when Pluto was discovered, you know, there was this big push to suggest a name for it. Um... They had lots of names that were bouncing around. Probably the funniest of the whole story was that Constance Lowell <laughs> wanted to basically kept suggesting names for it. The first name she suggested was Zeus, which made which doesn't really fit into the whole Jupiter. Yeah, Jupiter is, is the equivalent yeah. of Zeus. And in fact, if you're uh, if you're Greek and listening to this, you would know that the planet Jupiter is called Zeus uh, uh-huh. in your language because that's <laughs> so. That didn't, so that didn't really, really work. Then she wanted to call it Percival after her late husband, and finally she wanted to call it Constance. She wants to be. She wants her <laughs> name attached to the planet that she didn't want to fund finding. Yes. Um, okay. <laughs> Needless to say, uh, the other members of the observatory were were having none of that. Um, it was interesting because the person who should have had you know rights to this, Clyde Tombaugh. Um, actually kind of refused the rights. In fact, he begged his superiors, he begged Sliver, to pick a name really quickly before somebody else did. And interestingly enough, somebody else ended up picking the name of Pluto. It was an 11-year-old English schoolgirl named uh, uh, Venetia... um, Oh, uh, Venetia Burney, okay? Um, She was an Oxford schoolgirl... Uh, 11 years old, her grandfather, Falconer Menon, was actually the former Oxford librarian, okay? And 
at breakfast one morning, they were t- uh, he he tells her about this discovery and about this new planet, and they started talking about names. And she suggested she, having just learned mythology in school, was like, "Well, they should call it Pluto because Pluto would have been Jupiter's brother, and we already have a planet named Neptune after another one of Jupiter's brothers." Mm-hmm. And so uh, Falconer liked that idea. And he wired some friends, in, uh, some friends in America with that suggestion, and eventually that made it all the way back to Flagstaff. And when they put it to a vote in Flagstaff, they had shortened it, they had a shortened down list of three names, two of which they didn't like, and the third one was Pluto, and Pluto won every single vote. It was unanimously chosen by the, the staff. And so on May first of that year, they Flagstaff announced that they were going to name it Pluto, and everyone loved it. Okay. Um, and kind of as a reward, um, uh, Venetia won five, or Venetia. was given five pounds. How, Venetia. Yeah, how's her name spelled? V e n e t i a. That's what I thought. Is that Venetia? I I would I would think to pronounce it Venetia, and I wonder if the the origin of the name is related to apparently another planet, Venus. It is okay, it is to Venus. Venus. So. So, it's it. She was named after a planet, and she named a planet. But her grandfather gave her five pounds as a reward for naming a planet, which (laughs) seems kind of, oh, five pounds, that's kind of cute. Well, in 1930s England, that was about 430 U.S. bucks at the time. So, she got herself, like, a, you know, (laughs) a a good good. amount of money. Like, we're talking, like, if it was modern day, she could buy, like, a PS4 with that. So, she was, you know... She was well compensated. Well compensated. iPad money, basically. <laughs> um, the the observatory, by the way, picked also picked Pluto because of some symbolic significance with it. The first two letters of Pluto are obviously P and L, which would be the initials of Percival and Lowell. Mm-hmm. Percival Lowell. So they liked it for that reason. And then when they um, every planet has an astronomical symbol associated with it for basically shorthand reference. And the uh, the symbol for Pluto was a monogram of the letters P and L put together. Okay, so if you've received, it's P, the letter P with an L part sticking off the bottom. Okay, mm-hmm. that's Pluto's thing. And again, it fits with the whole Percival Lowell, Pluto sort of thing. By the way, they still do that today. Uh, I mentioned the New Horizons probe at the beginning of the thing. Uh, while New Horizons was on its way to Pluto, they discovered two other moons of Pluto, and they named them Nix and Hydra, <laughs> because the initials then would be N and H after New Horizons. Uh-huh. So this is a common common theme in, in astronomy. That is basically... Nix and Hydra? No, Nix. Nix. N-I-X. N-I-X. Okay, yeah, not Nixon, like not Nixon the former was... president. <laughs> no, no, Nix and Hydra. Just, <laughs> okay. Um, the, the naming convention for for Plutonian mm-hmm. objects, or at least the moons, are all based off of things from the Greek underworld. Okay. Yeah. Hence why. Hydra. Hydra, yeah. And, and so classical planets are Roman gods. Um, you know, each, each planet has their own naming systems. For example, like Jupiter is, the moons are named after lovers of Jupiter. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Saturn are Titan names. Um, Uranus, I think, has one of the best ones. It's uh, characters from Shakespeare plays. Yeah. <laughs> or characters from uh, The Rape of the Lock by, uh, what's his name? Pope, that's right. Yeah. Um, anyway, kind of fun, fun tidbit. Um, now, uh, any discussion about Pluto would not be complete with 
out talking about Pluto's fall from grace. Okay. Um, even though they discovered Pluto, and this was a big deal at the time, um, you know, very, very awesome thing, there was a problem. The original uh, calculations that were used to show, to basically prove the existence of Pluto, that there had to be a Pluto, um, suggested that the object had to be slightly larger than Earth. Well, even in the photos, it no. was clear Pluto was not going to be slightly it's larger tea. than Earth. It was a tiny dot, basically. I mean, even at the time, they, they were, people, when they first saw the photos of it, were a little taken aback. It was way too small for what was expected to be there. And so things started to, you know, people started to question, well, you know, we found Pluto, yay, but there's still this problem. And so the search for another planet continued. Um, because Pluto didn't fill in the gap. They knew it didn't fill in the gap, so they kept looking. They also kept studying Pluto, obviously. And in 1948, they redid calculations of, of Pluto based off its orbit and stuff, and realized not only was it you know, smaller than Earth, it was smaller than Mars, okay, which is one-third the size of Earth. And then later on, they even dropped it down to one-tenth the size of Earth. So it was the incredible shrieking planet at this point. And they kept looking at it. Um, in 76, enough, I guess, visual data from Pluto was, 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 had been gotten around at the time that Pluto's albedo, or basically its shininess, could be measured for the first time, and it showed that Pluto couldn't be bigger than one one-hundredth the size of Earth. So it went from being Earth-sized to one percent the size of Earth, okay? And then further, in 78, it was... Pluto's moon Charon was discovered. And if you know anything about the Plutonian system, the, its moon Charon is actually about the same size as Pluto. Yeah. Um, I've it's heard it described as more like okay. a double planet system. And in fact, uh, basically that is certainly the case. Pluto and Charon don't really orbit... Uh, they don't... Charon doesn't really orbit Pluto. Pluto and Charon orbit a, a point... A central point. ...between the two. And they're so... They're basically kind of doing this dance. In fact, some people would like it to be classified as a double planet because mm -hmm. it's really two of them. Um, when you talk about Pluto, you also have to talk about Charon, basically, these days. And so when, when they found Charon, the size of Pluto and the size of the system was even further downgraded. And it became crystal clear at that point that Pluto could not be the solution to Lever's original predictions. And so they kept looking for Planet X. Uh, what ended up solving the mystery was the Voyager 2 spacecraft, which in 1989 made its flyby of the planet Neptune. And because of that, scientists were able to get some actual, you know, direct measurements of, the, of these planetary systems, and they, they were able to actually correctly calculate the masses of Uranus and Neptune, Neptune for the first time, and discovered that the original data they had on the planets was totally wrong. And that Neptune is totally big enough to account for the discrepancies in Uranus's orbit. And so this original need for a tenth planet for this planet X disappeared. Mm -hmm. there, there was no planet X. There didn't need to be one because, you know, we had correct data now on all these planets and we figured out clearly that they the the orbits were, were fine under you know orbital mechanics. So there didn't need to be a planet X. So you know, then, well, what's the deal? Because they found Pluto based off these orbits. It's actually a coincidence that they did. Yeah. Um, because, again, wrong data pointed to an object. 
So it was a coincidence that they found Pluto, but again, not really because at the same time, in 92, they started finding objects beyond Neptune that were very Pluto-like. Um, they're called trans-Neptune objects, and they were being discovered on a yearly basis at that point, okay? These TNOs. Well, what finally happened was, in 2005, July 29th, uh, astronomer Mike Brown announced the discovery of a TNO called Eris, which is bigger than Pluto, okay? Um, bigger than Pluto, you know, and, and people at the time looking at that would clearly not call it a planet, so you have this issue here. Um, you know, we, yeah. We're finding things bigger than Pluto, kind of doing the same neighborhood as Pluto's in, but, um, you know, no one in their right mind at this time would start calling these things planets. And so um, that kind of led to the whole planet controversy of what they want to call Pluto. Mm -hmm. um, hence why the term dwarf planet developed. Yep. Um, Pluto although, is a dwarf planet. Eros yeah. is a dwarf planet. Yep. Uh, there's, there's actually a, a three other ones besides them that they've yeah. classified. Um, the asteroid okay. Cirrus, which is also uh, a discovered object um, in the 1800s, was one of them. Um, uh. The one called, like, Make Make or Maki Maki. Make -make. It's spelled like Make Make. Yep. And Haumea is uh -huh. the last one. Um, and the naming convention for trans-Neptune objects is that they're named for gods of the underworld in various world religions. So Pluto, Eris, ah. and Strife, who is a goddess of the underworld in, in a certain way. Haumea and Make Make are underworld gods of, um, I think, Polynesian island peoples. Yeah. So it all kind of... But so that's that's the history behind Pluto, yeah. if you will. Um, and soon, you know, like I said in July, we're going to get a lot more information. You can already see cool Pluto photos online as they're being posted. They're still not particularly impressive because they're mm -hmm. rather blurry still. Um, but as the probe gets closer, the photos get better and better and mm -hmm. better. And so... I'll have to keep updating the page um, for for this for these show notes so that you can see the links to the better, fancier pictures. Yep. So, but uh, that's that's the history behind the history finding behind of a planet. Pluto. Finding so. the planet. People were so I remember people were so mad that he was it wasn't a planet anymore, no. but it's its own special. It's its own special thing. So don't think of it as you know a planet being demoted. Think about it instead as the first of this whole new class of objects. And, you know, I've even heard, like, modern astronomers saying that we really shouldn't be teaching planets as in, here's the planets, memorize them, but we should be teaching the qualities. Right. Because that's more important to know. Exactly. And it, it better defines and it better. It it's is. a better understanding of how the solar system uh, works and what's really there. That's what they do at the Haydn Planetarium, too, yeah. in, in New York. It's... They group things by categories, and so mm -hmm. uh, the inner planets are grouped together because they're all rocky and have, on a very base level, the same characteristics. When it comes down to it, Earth, Mars, Venus, Mercury are all rocky objects. Um, but then the bigger planets in the outer solar system, Jupiter, Saturn, Neptune, Uranus, they're all gaseous, and so they're big gas balls. And more Pl Pluto stories we can link to... I know there's a fun documentary um, with Neil deGrasse Tyson where yep. he talks about the adorably angry notes he gets from <laughs> children about Pluto. Yes. He wrote a, a great book about all this called The Pluto Files, 
Um, that's also what uh, was made later on to a PBS Nova documentary. Yeah. Um, which you can, I believe you can just go online and watch it. I don't believe it's... Yeah, it might be just streaming on PBS oh, yes. or on Netflix. Right. Uh, I know it's on Netflix, but it's also, um, should be on just PBS. Mm-hmm. Very good, very good documentary. Um, there's other good, good, good sources of information about the whole yeah. Pluto thing, so. Plus also fun. Anyway. So, that's, that's the history of it. <laughs> that's Pluto. Yep. I remember taking astronomy in college, and, like, the first day, our professor said, you think there's nine planets now, but just give it time. Yeah. <laughs> and there will be eight. There will be eight, yep. Um, I know, he called it, and though my understanding at this point may, means, in, in truth, this was somewhat, with current knowledge, somewhat inaccurate, but he thought it would be defined as a Kuiper Belt object. Not quite. Not quite. Kind of. Well, so in the ballpark, but not quite. I believe it's in the ballpark. Um, I know Eris is not a Kuiper Belt object. It's yeah. A, uh, something part of what's called the scattered disk. Um, mm-hmm. So, but when it comes down to it, I mean, we're so far out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, these objects are a little hard to, <laughs> you know, to, to necessarily group in together. As in fact, there's a category of objects um, around Pluto called, like, Plutoids. And... It's a terrible name for because I think Neil deGrasse Tyson's mentioned it's a horrible name because it sounds like hemorrhoids. Yeah, it does. <laughs> plutoids. But that's, that's what they call it, like plutoids. Um, but I, I, anyway. Um, but that's the, that's the deal. Pluto, yeah. so, and so. that's how far we've come in astronomy from Canali and that yep. people to, you know, defining what sort of object Pluto is and right. actually having pictures, and having pictures. So look at it. Yeah. So we'd know any more of the characteristics mm-hmm. about these objects as they come up. Cool. So, yeah. It's all very interesting stuff. Well, so. that is it for this episode. So. Um, we'd love to hear from you at 100centuries.com um, That's 100 spelled out, not the numbers. <laughs> or you could leave us a... Um, some feedback as a review on iTunes or Stitcher or Android or whatever um, podcatcher you are. <laughs> yeah, whatever podcatcher you're using to, to listen. And hopefully we will be back soon with another episode related to astronomy and photography. Um, so we are currently researching the camera obscura. Very interesting thing. Very interesting object. Yes, we had to make one once. (laughs) Um, And we will talk about that in the next episode. All right. So without further ado, this is 100 Centuries signing off. Bye-bye.